We are UCL, and these are our remarkable stories. Hi, I'm Mitesh Vagadia. I work in the UCL Student Support and Wellbeing Team. In each episode, I'll be in conversation with a UCL guest as they share with us their remarkable stories, experiences, and life lessons. In today's episode, I'll be talking to UCL alumni Nick Coveney about his experience growing up a member of the LGBTQ community and how this impacted his education and life as a young adult. When did you first know you were a part of the LGBTQ plus community? Um, I think for me, it, it was it was both a gradual thing and an instant thing. So there, there are two sort of things where, you know, growing up, I always felt slightly out of the loop of, of what laddie lads and um, blokey boys were into. I, I never liked football. I didn't really get into any of that. And um, I, I have a, an older brother who I'm very close to. He was much more sort of like your typical um, lad growing up. So he was into, you know, trucks and cars and rugby and football uh, and worldwide wrestling. Uh, and I was far more into, you know, computer games and comics and dragons and all, all sorts of sort of um, imaginative things. So I was a sensitive child, I believe, is the euphemism commonly used. Okay. Um, but also I had a very sort of instant moment where um, just after the, my father passed away, um, I joined my fifth primary school and I was uh, in the position of having to choose who to sit, sit next to in class. Uh, I would have been age sort of 10 at the time and uh, I wasn't conscious of it right then but I knew who I needed to sit next to and it was uh, another boy in my class who I ended up developing the most enormous crush on uh, a few years later. So I think that was probably the moment when uh, I really knew even though I didn't have a name for it and I didn't really know what it meant. I just knew I wanted to be around that person. Okay. You said fifth school. Yeah. Wow. Yes, yeah, so I, I went to eight schools in total. Um, I went to five primary schools, two secondary schools, and then a sixth form college. And they were kind of peppered all over the country. So sadly, not exotic enough to be going to different countries, but uh, different counties of the UK. And was this because of your family structure in terms of your parents working or what, um, what was what was the reason behind this? So it was a mixture of different circumstances, to be honest with you. Um, sadly, as I referenced uh, earlier on, my father passed away when I was 10. So that had an impact. Um, and my mother, who was very brilliant in her career, worked in the kind of field where the only sort of progression opportunities available to her were ones which were split out by local authority. So she worked in um, tertiary education and in order for her to sort of really progress her career, sadly that involved moving not just um, sort of locally, but moving cross county in order to sort of follow the opportunities. Okay. Um, because there would have been a conflict of interest if you sort of tried to, to do the same thing in the same local authority area. So that's why we're sort of like middle-class nomads. Okay. You said that you, you went to this school and so what age were you at this at this time? Uh, so I would have been, this would have been 1997, and I would have been 10. Wow, so young as 10. Yeah, yeah, for me, I mean, I think there had been signs. I, I was already into things like, you know, He-Man and Thundercat in a big way, and 
looking back now as a, a man in my 30s, I think that the artists were having a lot of fun with uh, some of the, you know, imagery. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't sort of conscious of it. Mm. And, you know, when I was 10, all I really knew was that I, I really wanted to spend time with this other boy in my class. Um, and then, you know, over the years, that kind of developed into different feelings. And those feelings, did you ever share them with anyone? No, actually, not at the time. Um, sadly, the next thing that happened really was that um, we moved again to another county. So that that was never sort of romantically explored. Okay. So when was the first time you actually told another person? Um, so the first person I sort of consciously came out to was actually my older brother. Uh, and I would have been about 15 and a half. So I guess this would have been around 2001. Um, and I was very fortunate. He was incredibly supportive. Um, the one thing we did agree on was that I had to tell my mum because my mum and I have always been incredibly close. Uh, and I think he felt a little bit awkward that he'd had the uh, you know dubious honour of being the first person in the family that I told. <laughs> so he wanted to kind of rebalance that. Um, but both he and my mum were really supportive, which was great. In terms of your, you mentioned that your brother was always into like the sporting stuff, the rugby and all that sort of stuff. Was was there ever a a moment where you thought I don't want to tell him because of what he might think of me? No, I think I, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, I I picked up on some vibes in my family that meant that I had a few internalized fears about coming out, um, which we might touch on later on. Um, but I kind of sensed that my, my brothers and my mum loved me and I thought that they would have to uh, continue to do so. I didn't really think that my sexuality would, you know, be an issue with that. But it, it was, um, you know, it was a pressuring scenario uh, and it was one of those things where I, I definitely, you know, had girlfriends at secondary school who I was only interested platonically <laughs> in as friends uh, who I should not have dated but I felt very much sort of under the expectation that I had to have those relationships and I had to be seen to be um, you know one of the lads mm. um, so it was quite liberating actually to to end up being happier in myself and coming out to my family when I was you know relatively young at the age of 15 um, because that enabled me to really you know start owning my identity and my relationships properly and kind of break away from that peer pressure. Mm. Was it like an instant weight off your shoulder when you actually told your brother for the first time or you told your mum for the first time? <laughs> yes. Um, once the tears are dried up, yeah. It, it, it's one of those things, I think, for some people, uh, it's an incredibly unique and personal thing. And, you know, you always remember the day you first came out. Coming out is a kind of continual process because it's something that, you know, you, you have to do in your day-to-day -day life all the time. So whenever I meet a new person at work, whenever I'm in a new social scenario, usually it's not an issue. And I'm very fortunate I work in a, you know, progressive, creative industry where most people expect a certain amount of liberal values. But you do kind of have to make a conscious decision in life of whether or not you're going to tell someone, whether or not they're going to make an assumption. Um, but telling my, my older brother and my mum was very liberating for me because once, you know, they'd said their piece and had a, a while to sort of wrap their heads around it, it was um, very positive in terms of enabling us to be honest with each other. Mm. You said internal fears. <laughs> yes. 
What did you mean by that? Um, so, you know, as I, I referenced earlier on, I went to a variety of schools. Um, a few of those primary schools were religious. And so I definitely had a bit of fire and brimstone in my education um, about, you know, homosexuality being sinful. Um, one of them was a, a Roman Catholic primary school. So it's the unforgivable sin. Worse than murdering people somehow. Because you can say sorry for murdering people in Catholic faith, but you can't homosexuality. Was there anyone you felt worried or scared about telling at that age? So there are a couple of different things. Um, me personally, I was kind of advised by my family to, to maybe not broadcast it at school, uh, which we'll come back to. The other thing was that um, I was sort of asked very respectfully not to mention it to my maternal grandparents um, for reasons that became very sort of poignant to me later on. Um, I discovered that I actually had a great uncle who was gay. And very sadly, um, those were less liberal, progressive times. And he was um, convicted and actually ended up committing suicide. So that was obviously a very emotional thing for my family and um, still remains very sort of poignant to me personally. It makes me very conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm very lucky and fortunate to be living now, even though we don't live in a utopia, mm. we have progressed as a society. Um, and I'm very glad to be alive now where I can be open and authentic and live my, my own life rather than in the 1950s. Mm. You said you're gonna. We're gonna come back to. You went to school. Yeah, my family initially actually advised that, uh, owing to the context of me being new at the school, and having only been there for say seven months, um, to not come out to my best friends, because although I felt very close to those people, although I thought that we were close, I'd only known them for a relatively short window of time. Of course, being a teenager, I knew better. So um, I told my best friends at school and asked them to keep it a secret because this would have been 2001. And I knew that kids got bullied for being gay, even though no one in my school was openly gay. It was something that you'd hear homophobic insults all the time. I knew enough to know that it wouldn't go down well. So I asked them to keep it to themselves um, and one of them actually told her boyfriend who at a sort of school party decided it would be funny to get drunk and tell everybody. So I then had the situation where suddenly being relatively unknown other than to a small group of the people I became friends with, I was notorious at my school as Batty Boy uh, and asked, you know, you go then. <laughs> so I, I got outed, which basically means um, rather than choosing to come out, people decided to broadcast my sexuality without my consent mm. uh, at my secondary school. And after being outed, rather than denying it, I decided to, to try and kind of own it. So that was, for me, the sort of big turning point. Wow. Was that frustrating that it was someone else that outed you and not yourself? Yeah, massively. Um, it's an incredibly sort of personal thing. 
And even though I'd elected to tell that small, you know, trusted circle of friends, it felt like a huge betrayal and it felt very scary and kind of odd to be thrust into a spotlight like that and sort of forced into a position where you don't want to deny it because there's there's nothing wrong with it and it is who you are. But also it's a catch-22 because you know that by, by saying, yeah, I'm gay, um, your life is going to be different. Mm. Were you glad that it came out then now? Um, that's a, a tricky question to answer. After I got outed, I was bullied pretty ferociously. Um, and that was very difficult for me to deal with for a number of reasons. Mm. But I think with the benefit of hindsight, a lot of it wasn't even about my sexuality. You know, I was new to that school, basically a pretty anonymous straw man with a target on my back. Very easy for kids, the way kids are, to sort of push their insecurities onto me because none of them grew up with me. None of them really knew me. So it's kind of like a, from their perspective, a victimless crime. Mm. Um, but I did get a lot of abuse, um, mainly, you know, verbal, just insults, um, <laughs> some very off colour, um, and a little bit of physical abuse. What was really challenging and difficult for me to reconcile with, though, was that owing to the fact that Section 28 was still in force in the UK at the time, I actually received some very sort of low-level microaggressions, some more obvious aggressions, and some outright abuse um, from members of the faculty at my secondary school, uh, because they were under the sort of warped perspective that Section 28 enabled them to be abusive towards me. For layman's term, what is Section 28 for someone like me? I thought you might ask. So I actually have uh, some wording of the official um, <clears throat> background of Section 28. A local authority shall not intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality or promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Okay. So if you sort of unpick that, it shall not intentionally promote. So a lot of homophobic people read that as well. I can be as negative about it as I like because I'm not promoting it. And so it was used as a gateway for a lot of people to either cover up um, homophobic abuse or to, in some instances, commit homophobic abuse. Because, mm. you know, they weren't making it look like a good thing. At school, the students particularly nasty. Um, but was it just the students? No, I mean, um, as well as the students, there were certain teachers, um, members of the faculty, who were also abusive. So um, I won't name names. It was a long time ago. But I had a maths teacher who referred to me as it or her. Um, and... <sighs> one of my PE teachers may or may not have been the author of a petition that was circulated that stated that other boys were uncomfortable with me changing in the same area as them for PE. Um, 
said teacher also observed footballs and rugby balls being thrown at me while I was getting changed for months and did absolutely nothing to stop it other than to advise the students who were throwing these things at me not to hit my face because it would leave a mark. But I was also very um, fortunate in that some of the teachers were much more supportive. Um, I had a brilliant art teacher, an excellent English teacher and a great science teacher and all three of them um, were great. And if I had any issues or instances of bullying either in the corridors or between lessons, in lessons, um, they were always very keen to sort of try and protect me. One of the weirdest things uh, for me now is that one of the people who at the time I felt was being most supportive with the benefit of hindsight, I think was um, maybe manipulating my behavior a little bit. So I, um, I was fortunate in that my head teacher was sympathetic to my plight. Um, they, they later actually outed themselves as an openly gay man and cited me as a point of inspiration, which was very flattering. But they also kind of encouraged me to not tell my mother or my family about all of the behaviour happening at school because we wouldn't want to worry them, would we? Um, so obviously, you know, as a 15-year-old, mm. um, I was quite susceptible to the sort of flattery that I could handle this on my own. But with the benefit of hindsight, I should never have been put in that position and I should have been encouraged to tell my family about what was happening so that they could support me as well as the school. It shouldn't have been a sort of either or. Um, but I was able to sort of channel some of it positively. Um, you know, I, I kind of fought back in my own way against uh, some of the abuse that I received. And I worked um, with my school to sort of lobby the local council and I helped um, set up and then run a gay youth group. Wow. Which was called Glisten, uh, Gay Lesbian Youth Social Support Network. <laughs> and that was run by some brilliant people at the info shop in Hastings. And okay. I kind of volunteered to be this uh, youth chair of it for, for a year and a bit. It was brilliant. We did sort of sex ed, put condoms on bananas. Mm. It was very innovative. Uh, watched, you know, queer cinema and ate pizza. It was great. Did anyone else come out as a result of you coming out? Well, I wouldn't um, want to say that it was directly as a result, but um, after the abuse sort of got properly um, managed by the school and began to die down, a few other people in my academic year did come out and in the school more widely. And what was really nice and refreshing to see actually um, was that they didn't seem to sort of suffer the same abuse that I did which was really positive, actually. Um, I was really relieved to sort of see them just being left alone and happy in themselves. I think by that point, the school had gotten whatever it was out of its system um, to a point. At my Leavers event, I still had a sort of subtle dig where in the program I was referenced as most likely to have a sex change, which shows a fundamental misunderstanding between being a gay man and being a, a, a trans person. But... Uh, you know, it is what it is. The head teacher manipulated you in terms of not letting your your family involved, not getting them to be aware of what's happening at school. So you, it sounds like you did this all yourself. Like you, it was pretty lonely at the time. Yeah, it, it was. Um, 
and I I had a sort of fallout with some of those best friends and in inverted commas who I'd told initially because obviously one of them had chosen to tell her boyfriend who broadcasted it to everybody. Um, so I made better friends um, during the rest of my two years there. Um, but for me, it, it was a really rough time. I, I didn't enjoy being bullied um, and I didn't, didn't even realize at the time that I was being manipulated um, into not telling my mum what was happening. You know, part of the context to that is that she would have been known as a sort of senior figure to people at that school. So I think it was that they were concerned that if she had been aware of what was happening, there would have been some wider fallout. Um, and there probably would have been, but there probably should have been as well. So it's a little bit um, circular. But, you know, looking back now, um, I wouldn't be who I am today if I hadn't had those experiences. So I can't begrudge anything that happened too much. Um, but it was tough at the time and it was quite scary. The, the worst thing that actually happened during that period didn't even happen to me. Um, I had this very odd experience where I told my friends I was going to go to a gallery um, and we'd all sort of said we, we might go check out this exhibit that was running. I didn't fancy it in the end. Um, by this point, I think I was about 16 and I had a boyfriend and we decided to do something else. And I got this string of text messages from my friends sort of panicking, um, saying, Nick, are you okay? What, what's happened? Can you call me? And I was a bit bemused, but sort of got in touch with them and said, yeah, I'm fine, guys, what's wrong? Like, oh, well, we heard you're in hospital. And it transpired that <clears throat> a group of guys who tried to beat me up outside PE after lesson because I'd been annoying them by being there um, had set their older brothers onto me um, but they made the mistake and they basically got some other kid beaten up for looking like me so that was a sort of double whammy because that kid had done absolutely nothing wrong other than being in the wrong place at the wrong time but even if I'd been there and I'd been beaten up I wouldn't have done anything wrong other than existing so yeah, that was probably the worst thing that happened. Was there any positives? <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of hard to um, pretend it was all sunshine and roses at the time, but I became much more confident. Um, I became much more articulate and I, I wouldn't say witty, but my retorts to the jibes got much, much better. Uh, and I learned how to handle themselves. I, I was fortunate in that having got to two brothers and grown up with two brothers, <clears throat> We'd had the odd occasional fight growing up, as boys do. Um, so, you know, when guys tried to beat me up, I think they often underestimated my physical abilities. Um, so I was okay on that front. And I don't know. I mean, I think for me, it was the beginning of my journey in terms of being a gay man um, and being an, an out member of the LGBT community. And it taught me a lot about, you know, identity, um, sense of self and confidence but also the importance of having good allies around you um, and that you know whatever your fears might be actually being yourself is not a bad thing and I was certainly by the time I went to sixth form college far more confident and far happier in myself for having had that period so I don't have any regrets about what happened really what was hard was feeling like the ownership of what had happened was taken away from me the moment someone outed me and then I had that sort of intense bullying period for about a year and a half 
where it was really popular to bully me, but just because it was, you know, easy pickings. Uh, I don't know how much of that was homophobia and how much of it was just the fact I was a new kid who also happened to be outed as gay. But, you know, a lot of it sort of dissipated after a while. They moved on to other things or once the, the positive um, role models at my school got involved into kind of proactively clamping down on it and the head teacher did come out, that kind of put paid to a lot of the negativity. Mm. So I think overall it was positive. I'm very proud of getting involved with Glisten and then latterly All Sorts and Brighton, which were the two sort of youth groups I was a part of. Um, they did incredible work and I was very proud to be a part of that. Um, and it also, to be you know completely honest, it you know probably helped my life enormously having some proper formative, detailed um, LGBT specific sex ed because that isn't provided in school to this day properly. Mm. Um, I know that generally sex education is a little bit um, wobbly and varies wildly from school to school, mm. um, particularly I think in faith schools, which is a big issue. But it was certainly something that, you know, as a, a gay guy growing up, I had no idea about, you know, how at risk I was or how to have safe sex before I got involved with those youth groups. So I'm very glad that they were there right at the start of my journey. And did it get easier from going from school to sixth form and then uni? Oh, definitely. Um, as soon as I got to sixth form college, there was like an instant inversion of power. So all of the kids who'd been incredibly cool and popular at uh, our high school kind of lost the structure that they built around them. You know, their mystique was shot because it didn't really matter whether or not you were in the top set for PE or you had the coolest boots or, you know, the slickest kickers or whatever the, the trend was at the time. It was more about your abilities academically and what you were studying. And by that point, you know, friendship groups are self-selecting. It's not about geography. Um, so the, the sixth one college I went to had multiple schools feeding into it. So some of my best friends now, um, some of my oldest friends are from that sixth one college. And the, the kind of the people who had all the power and were bullying me lost their power. I were kind of laughed at. I had better things to do than to, you know, actively believe them myself, but um, they kind of ostracized themselves from the rest of the group. Mm. And I think that, you know, that must have been very hard for them, losing all that power and control, um, and also realizing that they weren't actually the brightest bulb in the box. Um, but, you know, going to university was even more empowering. Uh, I did my bachelor's um, degree at Nottingham, and I generally found that, you know, being um, gay and being, you know, openly LGBTQ wasn't an issue in most scenarios. There were still a few environments where I kind of felt like there was something at play. And um, I'd always wanted to get into rowing. It was always a sport that kind of appealed to me. Um, and what I discovered at the University of Nottingham was that I didn't feel comfortable trying to get involved with the university's rowing club at the time. I don't know how much of that was in my head, how much of it was, you know, the kind of macho aura coming off the club. 
but it didn't feel like a space where I could be my sort of authentic self, which by this point I'd actually, you know, grown accustomed and felt kind of entitled to do. So I didn't get into rowing then. Um, latterly, about two and a bit years ago, I got involved with the London Otters, who are London's um, LGBTQ inclusive rowing club. So we have over 140 members in our club um, from all different backgrounds and of all different sexual orientations um, and ethnicities. And it's brilliant. And you know that club has enabled me to learn to row, but I didn't feel comfortable or confident doing that at university, which would have been a natural time for me to learn because I still felt that it wouldn't have been safe. Mm. Um, I should add, you know, in, in every other environment there, pretty much I, I felt empowered and um, looked after by my fellow students. So broadly, I felt pretty comfortable. There was just the, the odd experience where it still didn't feel right. Mm. And from a university perspective, was there a lot of support at the time? Um, I think there was support. I don't think there was a lot, and I think that you had to sort of actively seek it. So I got involved with the LGBTQ society. I don't remember seeing any literature around the campus. Might have just been a nosy spore that I missed. <laughs> uh, Nottingham campus is pretty big. It's about 300 acres or something of parkland. Hmm. Um, so it might have been in a different union building. As it happened, I ended up uh, getting involved with the Raise and Give Society, um, University of Nottingham Carnival. And, you know, that was great. But again, I think there wasn't really a dedicated provision for LGBTQ people at the time. So my uh, bachelor's degree would have been from 2005 to 2008. Um, and I think that, you know, there were things in place. There were certain places where you could go and get free condoms and free lube, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't feel like um, we as a community were kind of actively looked after. Mm. Why do you think that was? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Um, looking back, it's sort of a little bit glaring. I suppose it might have just been sort of seen as something where, you know, people would self-select and if they needed the resources, they'd get involved with one of the societies or, or sort of do it themselves. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, that does seem a little bit odd mm. um, and certainly not as supportive as it could be, particularly for people who might be struggling with their sexuality or questioning their sexuality, um, coming to a British university for the first time from perhaps a country where being openly LGBTQ is not acceptable. What would benefit and what would be good to help these students? Um, well, I think maybe some proactive presence at uh, Freshers' Fair and um, a nice visible section of a website. It, it's one of those things. Um, Obviously, if you if you try and run an event, something I'm very conscious of is I'm um, in my spare time, I'm co-chair of Pride in Publishing, which is a professional network for LGBTQ people working in the book industry. And we're a volunteer network, um, but we try and sort of signal boost LGBTQ fiction and um, the kind of issues that affect an LGBTQ plus workforce in book publishing. So we include uh, literary agents, booksellers, and people who work for book publishers. Um, one of the things we don't do is kind of outreach in terms of um, asking people, hey, are you gay? Um, you have to be more respectful than that, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's actually something where I've had people ask me if I can ask if someone is gay because they're curious. 
and I politely told them to fuck off because it's none of their business. Um, you know, if someone is um, gay, bisexual, lesbian, uh, or or trans, or somewhere on the spectrum of being LGBTQ plus, it's their job to tell you if they feel comfortable. And if they don't feel comfortable, then it's really none of your business. But I think by having visible resources and a presence um, and the, the kind of message that this is okay and this is supportive and if this is something that you're worried about, there are you know support structures and resources that you can draw on is incredibly positive. So you know those things matter, but you do kind of have to put put things out there and let people come to you. So our, our network now, uh, Pride and Publishing, has over 140 people on its mailing list, but they've all chosen to sign up. Mm. Um, they've all gotten in touch with us or gotten involved through the committee. And, you know, we, we've got a website that's not very good. <laughs> You've got Twitter and Facebook. Um, not a lot, but it's enough. I think universities should just try and make sure that, you know, rather than hiding something away and expecting people to know that there is an LGBTQ plus society, make it nice and visible for people as a resource both physically and online because you know if someone is with a group of friends and they're in the closet they might not have the confidence to go up to a stall take a flyer you know they might actually prefer to to just know that that society's there and get in touch in their own time online mm. where they've got anonymity um, and they feel like they can do that did you get involved when you were at UCL in any sort of clubs and societies? So then you were only here for the year, is that right? Yes. Uh, so I did my master's degree between 2009 and 2010. Uh, I was course rep for my um, master's program along with one of my best friends. Um, I Again, I joined the LGBTQ society, um, but I didn't have a formative role on the committee, I'm afraid. Uh, I got involved with the Society of Young Publishers and uh, was very sort of focused on trying to get into the book industry. Mm. So um, for me at the time, Having done uh, a fair amount of sort of LGBTQ volunteering by that point um, for a number of different charities, I kind of thought I'm going to just focus on my studies um, and you know go to the the social stuff so I can make new friends and meet new people. Um, but I was a little bit lame in terms of giving back while I was here. But it was only for a year. Are you giving back now? <laughs> well, I try to by sitting here with me. Oh, thank you. Natasha. One thing that reson really resonated to me, you said it today in, in our first initial meeting, was coming out, we never stop coming out. Yeah. Is that the case now that you're working in the world of work in publishing, that you still feel that way? Yeah, to a point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm openly gay uh, in the workplace. I'm actually um, nominated as one of my company's uh, LGBTQ committee um, for... I work for Rakuten Kobo and uh, Rakuten Americas are setting up an inaugural um, LGBTQA plus network um, for Rakuten Americas. And I'm one of Kobo's representatives on that, which I'm very honored to do. Um, but it is something that is a, it's a continual process. And in my past life, I worked as an editor uh, commissioning. I, I often found to my surprise that people would assume that I was straight. Um, sometimes in very small, unassuming, non-offensive or vaguely non-offensive ways, and sometimes in really um, pretty unpalatable ways. 
um, from, you know, trying to sort of encourage you to go on a date with somebody else in a different department to more glaring instances. Um, and, you know, this wasn't a long time ago. So one of the reasons why I'm co-chair of Pride in Publishing and I care so much about this is that um, as an industry, publishing is perceived to be a sort of liberal playground, but it still has a lot of issues around inclusivity um, and minority communities. And one of the things that I think we're, we're quite bad at, I mean, I'm very privileged as a cis white male working in the industry. I already have a lot of sort of power and privilege because I'll probably be considered as less likely to have a baby or take time off work. So when I was an editor, I might have been given preferential treatment. I always, um, you know, worked as hard as I could and tried to sort of give as much to the industry as I can. But I am conscious of the fact that, you know, I'm from a very middle class background. That's another position of privilege. Um, but one of the things that is quite galling is that you realize that sometimes when the mask slips, people's sort of homophobia or heteronormativity is really laid bare. And publishing kind of exists in a monoculture where <clears throat> very, very few people decide what is published for everyone. So, you know, there'll be an acquisitions meeting. The people in that meeting are picking what gets bought by the general public in bookshops. Um, Self-publishing and companies like mine, Racket and Covo, have kind of democratized the system because they've enabled people to push their own books out online. A physical book is still brilliant and physical publishers do an incredible job of curating great books. But the problem is if you don't have a very diverse workforce or if that workforce can't even be their authentic selves when they're commissioning, then you end up replicating the same book for the same person again and again and again. And they're usually white, middle class, 40 plus mother of one or two kids. And that experience just gets pushed out as like, this is Britain, this is a British book, uh, which is really harmful and not true. <laughs> you know, mm. we are a more diverse nation than that. Um, and so, you know, there've been a lot of things about trying to get more working class people, um, get more people from BAME backgrounds and do more to commission for working class people, people from BAME backgrounds and for the LGBTQ community. And it might sound really simple, um, but this is still a big problem. And it's kind of double pronged because you have the, the thing where there are challenges sometimes in commissioning LGBTQ uh, adjacent or related content. But then there's also issues of, you know, where does it sit? If you do publish it, does it go in the gay section? Does that make it a less good book if it sits in the gay section than in the fiction section? Yeah, it, it can be quite challenging sometimes. Mm. Do you feel there's still occasions where you feel like you have to still bite your tongue? Because if you, if you say something, you're going to be seen as that oversensitive, overdramatic guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I might... Um, mention uh, an anecdote that we, we talked about previously uh, when we first met, but one of the things that really shocked me um, when I was a commissioning editor, trying to get uh, celebrities to write uh, middle grade fiction, which is basically books for seven to 11 year olds, was there was this brilliant celebrity uh, that we had a concept for. We were kind of working up a pitch and for uh, any books that were too expensive or had a big advance, we had to go away to the consumer insight team 
and uh, get the overlords there to rubber stamp what we were doing and sort of say, yeah, that person, they're a safe bet. The data says, yes, you know, they are a real celebrity. And I was in this meeting with a very senior colleague who shall remain nameless. And they uh, sort of said, I'm paraphrasing now, partly to protect their identity, but they basically said, speaking as a parent, um, that they wouldn't buy a book by a big puff off the telly. And this was not that long ago. Um, and that, that really shocked me. Um, I was in the meeting, I was there with my line manager and a few other members of the team. No one said a thing, not one thing. And this was, you know, a very eminent, popular, uh, liberal organization with progressive values and you know, very, very popular um, senior management team. And no one sort of said at the meeting, that's unacceptable. So after the meeting, I go straight to my line manager and say, look, I'm really unhappy. I can't believe that happened. Why didn't you say anything? I want to complain. And I basically got told to keep my mouth shut. Um, I didn't say anything at the time. I, I felt my you know, blood boil and then condense in my um, veins, but I didn't say anything because I didn't feel like I could. You know, I'd fought very, very hard. Um, publishing is a very tough uh, industry to get into, notoriously so, hence why people do great MA programs <laughs> uh, at places like UCL to get into the industry. So I'd gotten my sort of dream job. I was a commissioning editor. And then this happened to me and I felt really blindsided by it because I wanted to complain and say that that's completely unacceptable. But I, I was the least senior person in that room. So I kind of felt like I was reliant on someone else to say it for me because then I wouldn't have had to be the, the melodramatic guy saying, oh, this is terrible. You know, it, it gets quite wearying sometimes if you're in a minority group that you have to be the one saying, that's unacceptable. I've got some family members who I love very dearly who I've, I have basically had to police their language. And this is something that I picked up on when I was in school. So when I, when I was outed, um, a member of my family said, oh, that's so gay. <laughs> I said to them, don't do that. And they're like, oh, no, no, I don't mean it like that. I'm like, I don't care how you mean it. By saying it, you mm. are perpetuating the idea that being gay, being me, is negative. Mm. It's not an insult. Don't do that. And now they don't. You know, this is a long time ago now. This is over <laughs> more years than I want to count. Uh, maybe over 18 years ago. Mm. And they don't anymore. But that's because I said to them, don't do that. Um, and in the industry, you know, in the working world, you, we need allies. We need people mm. to actually say that's unacceptable because then people like me who are actually in the minority group don't have to put our head above the parapet and worry about our job security by complaining about inappropriate behavior. Mm. It should be referenced that, that the person who I was talking about has since left said organization and I believe the book trade altogether. Um, so they're now doing something different. Okay. But it was you know, shockingly recent and it, there was a very, very esteemed sort of national treasure um, who I certainly would never refer to as that big puff off the telly. And I think that that was a very insulting and you know, pejorative term. And it was shocking that it was made you know, in a meeting room mm. um, not so long ago. What would an ideal society look like when it comes oh, to being gay? 
Um, the, this is going to sound really odd because, you know, being gay, being openly gay uh, is a big part of my identity. It's something that affects every day of my life. But it's also only a tiny bit of my personality. It's a tiny bit of my life. Um, there are so many other things about me that might be more interesting than that. However, it defines my existence because it breaks with the norm. So, you know, if I'm traveling with my partner, I have to think, is it safe for us to hold hands? Is it safe for me to look them in the eye even? Like, can, can we make eye contact here or would that not be safe? Um, yeah, can I give them a peck on the cheek? Probably not. And it's only on things like um, Pride in London, where you feel like you, you're more emboldened to do those things potentially, or in areas like Soho, where you think there's safety in numbers. But that said, you know, since the Brexit referendum, there's been a huge spike in the number of LGBT-related uh, hate crimes that have been reported. And that is worrying because it, it makes you feel like we could be going backwards as a society. You know, there are still a lot of issues. Um, there's things like gay cure therapy or so-called gay cure therapy because there's no such thing where people try and either pray the gay away or in the past have used awful treatments as a form of sort of mental bondage to try and force people to change their sexuality. Um, there's, there's the fact that because of people's stigma and ignorance around um, HIV and the AIDS virus, that um, gay men are more likely to kind of be ostracized from health services or less likely to take up those health services available to them. And also they can be prejudiced against in the workplace. You know, there are some shocking things reported about what happens um, if people are even believed to be HIV positive whether or not they, they are or are now undetectable because they've been um, on the right meds for a long enough period of time. Mm. So <clears throat> there are all these sort of complicated, nuanced things. In an ideal world, we would be safe and not tolerated, but allowed to exist, coexist in a way that meant it wasn't an issue. You know, the, the very fact that I'm kind of here today talking to you about this kind of shows that this is still a problem because we need to, you know, continue to, to push for a more inclusive society that's more welcoming, more supportive and less, you know, tied to um, anachronistic or religious teachings where, you know, science unfortunately disagrees. People's faith is their own personal business, but that should never be allowed to define anybody's existence or their legal rights. Um, that's where it crosses a line and becomes a, a sort of tool of oppression rather than a, a personal preference. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of friends of faith who I think would agree with me on that wholeheartedly. So, you know, what I would like to see is a more diverse and inclusive society where it didn't matter that I was gay. Mm. And I didn't have to worry about holding my partner's hand or giving them a quick peck on the cheek or whatever, because it shouldn't matter. But at the moment, it still does. What piece of advice would you give to someone 
who is still not outed yet, who's at university and wants to? Um, I would say come out when you're ready, when you're safe, and when you have a support structure. That doesn't have to be your family. Um, I, I hope that you know anyone listening to this if they're thinking about telling their family and they do that their family are as supportive as mine have been the sad truth is they may not be but as long as you have people around you who care and who you trust and you're safe and secure then you can you know own your identity own your sexuality and you will be a lot happier when you come out in your own time and in your own way. You know, some people, um, it's a big seismic event. It's a, a really big deal. Other people, it's far more sort of commonplace, run of the mill. You often have, I've had friends, oh, you know, we know, we've always known. It, it really varies um, depending on who you're talking to. So think about that. Think about who you're going to tell and how you might tell them. And, how they might react and protect them protect you only tell them when you're ready don't be pressured into feeling like you have to tell them if you never tell them that's your choice but it might affect your happiness if you're not able to tell them so think about that think about how you would like to tell them and think about how you would like them to react and then you know try and create a situation where you feel like they're going to respond to the news as positively as possible if they don't if for whatever reason they don't support you that's their failing not yours um, you know if they can't reconcile themselves to it it's their character flaw it's got nothing to do with you or your identity you're not doing anything wrong by being LGBTQ plus so remember that most of all that's deep I can do deep my final question and we ask everyone this question yeah. is what would you do differently or what would you say to your younger self if you went, if you could go back in time one piece of advice you would oh, tell your younger self <laughs> well I, I probably would have kissed that boy uh, never, <laughs> never really expressed my feelings to as a starter because uh, you know if you don't you'll never know um, and I, I still don't so there's there's always that um, but more seriously, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of telling your family. Your family will always be there for you. Your family will always love you. You'll find your friends. You'll find your, you know, tribe is thrown around in our community a lot, but you will find your tribe of people and you'll find your identity and it will be incredibly empowering for you. Um, don't feel rushed. <laughs> Maybe don't tell that group that you're thinking of telling first because that will pan out differently to what you expect but tell people when you're ready don't be afraid own it own it yeah find your tribe yeah love it Nick. thank you so much no problem for coming in if you have been affected by any of the topics raised in this episode please do visit the ucl student support and well-being website where you'll find a number of helpful resources Thank you for listening. Tune in to episode 4, where I'll be talking to UCL undergraduate student Leah about her journey overcoming alcohol and drug addiction, what she has learned from her experience, and where she is today.